Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, and if you're a fan of the only gentleman secret agent with a license to kill and thrill, you should pick up my new James Bond oral history, Nobody Does It Better, available now in hardcover, audio, and digital wherever books are sold. Do you expect me to read? No, I expect you to buy it. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. If you've been enjoying listening to us, imagine how entertaining will be when you are watching us. Now you can watch the 430 movie with Steve Melching, Darren Docterman, Ashley Miller, and me, Mark A. Altman, every day on Electric Now. How do you get Electric Now? You download Distro TV, Stir TV, Zumo TV, and soon the Electric Now app. And You just have to pick one. You don't have to have all of them. You don't have to have all of them, but it helps. And you can watch us on the Electric Now channel. Don't miss us as we bring you the 430 movie in your house in person. Need to make a call? Look for a police call box. That's where you'll find Two on Who, the new Doctor Who podcast from Electric Surge. Two on Who is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello and welcome back to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we explore interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. I am your co-host, Josh Miller, and with me, as always, is Mr. Steven Scarlatta. How are you doing today, Josh? I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself? Beautiful. Uh, And today we are talking about not one, but two unmade Friday the 13th movies that would have been directed by our guest here, Mr. David Bruckner. Hello. Um... (laughs) David, if you don't know him, is a director of one of my favorite horror movies from the past several years. It was called The Ritual. It was not a Netflix original. They acquired it. Am I remembering that Right, correctly? but it became a Netflix original. Original, that's they what acquired. they call it. Right, right, yeah. but we made it independently. Yeah. Um, well, just to familiarize the audience with you, mm-hmm. let's kind of just talk about you for a second. Mm-hmm. Um, how you started out and what projects led up to the Friday the 13th movies. Sure. Uh, I mean, I was uh, an Atlanta kid who was doing theater in my 20s, and um, I had kind of a troop of creatives around me, like other filmmakers and actors and writers, and uh, uh, we we worked at a theater that was a uh, had a workshop mentality, so the idea was like... Um, instead of necessarily having a mandate that we create content that puts butts in seats, we just sort of worked on stuff and uh, came up with ideas or workshopped old plays. And at a certain point, you would invite an audience in on that process. And uh, and then I had a love of horror films, so it was kind of cool because we were doing like, you know, Pinter by day, you know, and then throwing blood on the walls at night. So the <laughs> so the idea that like you know go shoot like our independent sort of uh, you know horror shorts at night. So the idea that there was like a clear line between high art and low art got pretty fuzzy to me pretty quick. Like it was all kind of the same <laughs> stuff, and um, and so you know we got more and more interested in filmmaking and um, uh, started a filmmaking branch of that philosophy, which we called the Dailies Project, which was. Um, this was like mid-aughts, and we would just sort of throw challenges out to the local community and say, you know, everybody go to Piedmont Park and, you know, shoot a short film under these guidelines and incorporate this plot element. And, uh, or everybody go tell the, the story of this picture. Or everybody take like one action, one concept that's playable, like um, 
seduction, you know, or intimidation and go do a, a, a film interpreting that in whatever way you can. And then we would kind of cobble these shorts together and we would screen them at local venues. And it was all very much off the radar. It wasn't really like plugged into the festival circuit. We didn't have a lot of professional aspirations quite yet. And um, we did that for, you know, several years. And I think the community in general made like maybe 100 to 150 short little projects. And I did everything from you know, hold the boom to to write to edit to all that kind of stuff, and are that those was really out there somewhere for uh, people. A to lot watch? of them are. A lot of the even though they screened together, you know, the independent the individual filmmakers just kind of you know they became shorts that they made. Yeah, and mm-hmm. um, people did different things with them here and there, but but that was really my film school, and so um, it was one of those projects that um, led to our first feature film, which was The Signal, which was based on an exquisite corpse project where or concept where um, the the idea is you start a drawing and you hand it off to somebody else and you see where they can take it. And um, I I went and shot 20 minutes of a feature film um, written by my buddy Rob and uh, and then kind of our, you know, like local actors around us came on board and were like, yeah, we'll stick through to the end. And so I finished it, cut it, everything, handed it to my friend Dan Bush and said, figure out what happens next. And so he came back like eight months later with another 40 minutes to the movie. And um, and then he gave it to our friend Jacob Gentry, and he was like, this is a mess. Um, <laughs> but uh, but there's something here, this kernel is something here. And so we kind of backed up, and um, we found a little cash from a local investor, and, and we used it to sort of reformat the idea and um, shot a feature film out of it. Um, well, so that's like, interesting. So you kind of almost workshopped it by starting to make it and then started over? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and and that's how we got to the signal, which is, you know, loosely about a, a you know, mysterious transmission that broadcasts over the airwaves and um, drives, you know, people to violence and people don't know, you know, where it's coming from or why. And uh, but it has three directors in it, and so we each told the story of a different member of a love triangle from their perspective. There's like a Rashomon quality to it. And to your point, we kind of got to that out of the workshop. It sort of it sort of grew out of you know the utility of what we had been doing. And so um, that got into Sundance, and that got us started. And then I started doing meetings and the water tour, and started trying to figure out how to do this professionally. Mm-hmm. And. Did VHS fall before the Friday the 13th stuff? Like where, how do we connect those dots? Yeah, it was definitely, like, I think, I think, like, you know, Hollywood didn't really know what to do with us after the signal. It didn't make any sense to them. Like, why did three of you direct a movie? <laughs> um, I know that and... <laughs> DGA hates that kind of thing. Yeah, it was it was confusing on a number of levels for us as well, because we were like, do we keep going, just the three of us, or do we all go do our own thing? And um, I spent a few years just writing myself in circles and, um, you know, getting a few bad scripts out of my system. And um, and Brad Miska called me about VHS. And so that happened somewhere around 2012. That was before Friday the 13th. And, um, and VHS sort of made a little bit more noise and it came out in the midst of the, you know, the, the, the found footage moment. Mm-hmm. And um, people were suddenly very interested in how far found footage can go. You know, you clearly, did the first segment, right? I did the first segment, yeah, Amateur Night, and uh, yeah. that was another Sundance movie, right? It was. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was. It was exciting because none of us. It was really cobbled together as an anthology in the sense that I don't think most of the filmmakers had seen the whole movie till it premiered, so we really didn't, had no idea what we'd made, and uh, but yeah, that that got me an agent, and, you know, management, and suddenly it was like. There were possibilities and opportunities, and I was still living in Atlanta at the time. And I, I at that point, became determined to get to Los Angeles one way or another. Oh, right on. Yeah. And then, mm-hmm. how, how does Friday the Thirteenth first 
poke well, its head out? <clears throat> well, it was, you know, I got I got the reps. I took a million, you know, meetings and some the of them water studio. Water bottle tours, people the water like to bottle call it. Tour. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, just I, I think my philosophy at the time was just engage. You know, I had things that I wanted to do that I was developing, but... I was a little bit slow and to kind of get them up and running. And, and there were a lot of people showing up and saying, oh, we've got this existing franchise. And, you know, I was a guy who had made a living at that point doing, you know, weird corporate video and, you know, regional commercials and whatever I could get my hands on necessarily. I hadn't really made money as a filmmaker. I hadn't made money in Los Angeles or in Hollywood in any way. So I was definitely receptive to all of these different possibilities. And, uh, uh, some of them included, you know, uh, uh, reinventing, you know, old franchises like um, like I wrote a um, my writing partner at the time, uh, Nick Tukoski and myself wrote a uh, an Amityville movie with uh, radio silence, oh. And, oh, wow. which was this crazy idea that Dimension had when we came out of, um, you know, VHS. They just looked at our two shorts and were like, oh, that's great. Can you guys figure out how to make Amityville found footage, which we thought that's that's not a great idea. But we'll give it a shot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll take the job, and uh, and and we did our best, and then eventually it kind of became a hybrid, sort of not found footage, sort of found footage kind of thing, which I think, leading to Friday Thirteenth, set a pattern for for you know uh, us being able to take meetings because we had done a found footage movie, and then trying to find a way out of making another found footage movie, <laughs> and. Um, but uh, uh, but yeah, I had I had just to give a little context to Friday the Thirteenth, just where I was. I I had um, I'd been attached to a different movie in 2013 um, that had won the California Production Lottery. So, um, uh, meaning it could it basically was getting a discount to shoot in California, um, which increased the likelihood that the financier and the production company, everybody were in good spirits and they were going to totally make this movie. How many and, things are competing in that lottery? Did you have any idea? Is it a lot or I I don't, I don't know much about it. I mean it. my understanding is that it was uh it was it was fairly significant and um and the movie took place in San Francisco and San Francisco is a pretty pricey place to shoot mm-hmm. so um the idea that we could really do it in San Francisco um everything looked good and um I was in the process of trying to move out of Atlanta and just like do the classic East Coast, West Coast, throw everything in the car and make the move kind of deal. But I, I, uh, I still had an apartment in Atlanta and I was out in L.A. all the time trying to trying to get this thing going. And um, and it looked like it was going to happen. And I had just basically been in this like, you know, seven, eight month stretch trying to get a few of these things going and particularly this one where, you know, you're not making any money as a director, you're developing, Mm -hmm. you know, you get paid when the green light happens. And so you end up on this kind of stretched out financial lifeboat. And so I remember I flew back to Atlanta. I I moved everything out of my apartment. Um, I was like basically staying out here in Airbnbs, like pushing to official prep. And, uh, and like a week before prep happened, like the whole thing fell apart and um, and I, 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 you know, I had started dating someone out here, and I was just like, I looked around, and I was like, I have no, no freelance short game <laughs> in Los Angeles at all, and um, I can I can have conversations about big distant things that can happen, but like no one's letting me, you know, like edit something for them for cash. So, 
So I was like, I have to go back to Atlanta. You know, I have to, I have to figure out how to, how to make a little bit of money. So I went back to Atlanta. My truck died. And uh, I basically just, you know, ended up kind of, you know, broke, homeless, and, you know, without a ride and needing to sort of start all over. And just thinking at the end of 2013, like, you know, shit, movies really won. <laughs> and, um, and then I got a call about Friday the 13th. And, um, uh, you know, from the, the president of the studio, you know, at Paramount, oh, wow. who was like, what do you think about this? We're going to turn Friday the 13th into a found footage movie. And I didn't think that was a, a great idea. I thought it was a, a perilous proposition, you know. Um, <laughs> you know, this is where horror filmmakers go to die if you get that wrong. If you take uh, an immediate trend, you know, something that's very temporary mm-hmm. and then apply it to a classic franchise like this, like, you know, they, they will crucify you in public. And, and, um, and you know, and at the same time, it's like, okay, I kind of have a tiger by the tail. Like, I, I can't let this go. It's Friday the 13th. So many things where it's yeah. like, what do you guys think about <laughs> adapting blank? We're like, that's a horrible idea, but we need jobs, so we'll yeah. do it. <laughs> um, exactly. But I'm just saying, well, maybe we can hit pause and just yeah. let Steve talk a little bit about the franchise building up even totally, to this moment. Totally. Yeah, ju- yeah, just really quick because we did a Jason versus Freddy versus Ash episode and that brought mm-hmm. us all the way up to when that movie came out. And so after, well, when that movie didn't come out, <laughs> so Freddy versus Jason was huge and they tried to do a sequel. It didn't happen. And then um, Friday the 13th comes out, the remake, 2009 from Platinum Dunes, comes out President's Day weekend, 2009, and worldwide, it makes $91 million. So, of course, there's going to most likely be a sequel. So right before you came on, the two writers from that version um, had a script called Friday the 13th, Camp Blood, The Death of Jason Voorhees. They released it on Twitter, the script cover, and a couple of pages. And we can see that it kind of took place possibly in the snow, but they didn't go very further into that. Uh, they were let go. And then I believe in November, um, November 27th, 2013, they announced that there's going to be a new Friday the 13th arriving in the theaters in 2015. And then you got announced as a director April 15th, 2014. And so, so when, now when you're stepping in, when they called you, um, did they at all like talk about? I mean, so they immediately knew they wanted to do found footage. And who were the writers? Were there right? Were these writers already the new writers who I haven't mentioned yet? Were they already on board and everything at this yeah, point? Yeah, yeah. Ian Goldberg and Richard Nang who had done was uh, Platinum Dunes still involved? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Brad Fuller, Andrew Form, you know, were shepherding the project, and um, and uh, you know, Ian and Richard had already done a found footage draft at that point. And I think the studio was, you know kind of pressure testing it, seeing how it could work. And it's like, sometimes they bring you in and they're just, you know, you're thinking maybe they just want to think, they want to see what genre guys think about this, you know, what's the conversation going to be? And so, uh, you know, for me, it was, it's like, all right, this is probably not going to happen. Like, I'm probably not going to end up with this job, but uh, they want to fly me out. And um, I get just a little bit more context because it, it's my particular situation was kind of hilarious because I was like I was I was shooting corporate video in Alabama and I get the call and they're like, we want to talk about this. And I was like, well, I, I'm in like in the middle of this you know thing that I don't want to be doing, but I need to do. And um, 
and uh, they're like, well, we want to talk to you tomorrow. I was like, well, I, I can't. It's winter. It's like February, and I'm I'm I I have a heavy coat, and like, you know, I'm out here doing this thing. And they're like, we're gonna. F- why don't you get on a plane? We'll fly to Los Angeles like right now. And uh, and so I had to find a guy locally to take over for me, and I had to apologize <laughs> to my clients. I was like, I gotta, I gotta go take this meeting, and uh, and I show up in Los Angeles with like, you know, again, just like heavy coat. You know, like be- beautiful sunny Los Angeles. Yeah. on you, <laughs> yeah. getting off the plane, wander into the studio, and and they're like, "What do you think?" And so I, I, I had sent you the script. I to hadn't like read, read on the script plane. at okay. that point, so I didn't really know what I was in for. It was just the concept, which we had talked loosely about, and it was all still. I had done at that point like a lot of conversations about found footage. You know, I was kind of peddling it just a bit. Like, what's the future of found footage? And there are a lot of reasons to love found footage that I think are still exciting. Um, you know, uh, namely the fact that um, it, it allows you to kind of experience new tropes um, in, in a fresh new way. So it sort of takes you back to the beginning of like, what is it to face like a slasher or, you know, some kind of like a haunt experience or something. It makes it real again for the audience. But also I think it pushes a level of verite for the performers. Um, it feels, you know, when I made my VHS short, like the thing that we looked at the most was John Cassavetti's husband's, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's, there's sort of a, a, a style of performance that you have to adopt. That's trickier to pull off than people think in a lot of ways. And even though, some people may think of found footage as lowbrow. It's like um, you can actually do a lot of really fun improvisation, you know, with actors. And so uh, that and I think also, you know, the, the, the idea that you're sort of trapped in a moment and you have to justify the camera means that you have these really long, persistent moments where you're kind of stuck in a wonder. So it's almost like you get a little bit of what 1917 is after, but like in a horror film mm-hmm. format, simply by virtue of the gimmick or the mechanic. And so... I thought all those things sort of added to the experience. It's like that's what made the movie scary. What int- what wasn't interesting to me is the 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 strange bargain that a filmmaker would have to strike with an audience of like this tape is discovered, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. or how do we keep the camera rolling, or all these these strange things where the audience needed to kind of believe that the circumstance could um, uh, was was uh, uh, verifiable in some way. It was just kind of a boring game to be stuck in, and so. I, I went in and I told them all that, and I told and kind how, of what was the story they gave you at that mm-hmm. point? Like, how much did they tell you what they were want to do other than Friday Thirteenth found footage? I, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, because mm-hmm. was it always a reboot or was it supposed to be a sequel to the? It was a reboot. Yeah, it was. It was. They had a, at that point, I think, abandoned a sequel possibility from the pre... I think they understood that if they were going to go in this direction, it was a new stylistic format, they were going to have to start over completely. But um, but Paramount was digging into found footage quite a bit at that point. So they were looking at a lot of different possibilities. And so... And, and uh, yeah. And I, I don't remember a lot of how they pitched mm-hmm. me the plot at that point. Um, it was a little bit different than the actual draft that I, that I eventually ended up reading. Um, but it was sort of mired in... You know, wouldn't it be scary if, you know, a murder happened and then a tape showed up and, you know, and then you get into questions like, so, so Jason's recording his murders and he's like delivering <laughs> tapes. Like, how, like, that's not very Jason. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Jason just kills like that's that's kind of he's he, let's honor his simplicity a little bit. And so um, I, I, I don't know what other meetings are like. I know I just I fell into that situation and didn't think I'd get the job. And so just almost kind of pitched against the concept thinking this will be a fun ride. Like they're never going to call me again, but whatever. And, uh, 
And uh, and I walked out of that meeting and they and they basically were like, um, we like everything you have to say. Like, what would you do with it if it was found footage? And um, I was trying to pitch them on like a found footage hybrid. Like I was trying to use the District 9 route where it's like, look, you could kind of start with this and then... You know, at a certain point, you sort of forget the camera exists and we could adopt the style of it and sort of live in the world of it without mm-hmm. having to verify this camera because I don't know how you keep them recording for the whole movie. I really don't. Um, they're going to call it's us out on this. always my problem in those movies. I'm like, why yeah. just put the camera down well, it's, it was totally, <laughs> right away? Is there any interesting, like, hor- horrific, like, kills or anything in that version that you could think of that worked with the found footage with Jason? Well, what they they basically said... Yeah, eventually it's like they they gave they were like you have a week to figure out a pitch on this. So I stuck around LA and tried to come up with a bunch of that stuff and mm-hmm. um, came back in and pitched some of my ideas. And then you know we got into it with Richard and Ian and and that draft became very much an exploration of what they of what I had brought to the table and what they had previously written. And they had a, they made a you know they made a lot of gains on character. They had these two brothers. They had a I think a great coming-of-age sensibility um, in the script. and uh, Yeah, but what was this kind of, you know, short version? What was, like, the basic story that you remember? It was very similar to the Antosca draft. Okay. You know, it was, uh, you know, it involved two brothers. It involved uh, the last day of camp, you know, and it was like it went back to the counselors. Was it a period um, piece? It was a period piece, yeah. It uh, it took place. Actually, there may have been versions, I don't recall, where, you know, people were you know, attaching GoPros and stuff like that. And I think I think we all felt or we came to the conclusion that the only way to do this was to make it like, you know, 80s camcorder. Even if we had to justify lugging around like the separate recording device, <laughs> mm-hmm. it was just like if it if it's not retro, if it doesn't have like a certain tongue in cheek sensibility towards that, we're we're just gonna we're gonna flail, you know, because the audience is gonna they're not gonna buy it. Um and I know Richard and Ian were very hip on the eighties idea. And so yeah, that became kind of our approach um you know and and i think one thing that emerged there too that's important going into the antosca draft was this idea of coming of age which i thought richard and ian had a great sort of handle on and um for me it it became a uh like the the comp was dazed and confused it's like can you do something that captures um all the sensitivities of young people um so that the characters don't just become these thinly cut archetypes but actually weirdly become um, uh, we, we as an audience can find vulnerability with these characters it can be sort of surprisingly reminiscent of a period in our lives where we didn't know who we were and where we were going um, and there's something about that that's it kind of hilarious if you're like uh, sensitive in that way and then you know uh, Jason kicks in the door you know it's just like it, all the fears of growing older like metaphorically it's like it has like a certain place and so that was a lot of the kind of you know, thematic conversation, the stuff that we enjoyed about it. Um, but particularly where the kills were concerned with found footage, um, it was uh, it was hugely just like, you know, screenplay mechanics. Like, how in the hell are you going to do a slasher where traditionally people constantly wander off and get killed while the core group is slowly coming to the conclusion of what's happening. It's like all those people that wander off can't have cameras on them. <laughs> and then like how does the tape then get back to the rest of the party? And so in a kind of desperate effort to make it credible, we ended up shaking up the slasher format just a bit. It was like we just we, we can't keep, you know, these kills moving in the same way. And so I think the structure of it became 
uh, more of a slow burn kind of waiting game where you had um, a few people documenting what was going on and uh, and then a mystery of what was happening. And it was more about people disappearing. And then there were a couple unfortunate nasty body discoveries, but you weren't really seeing it. And it built to this midsection where you just you're like dying to see something happen in the movie and you have this the night where it's all going to go down and um everybody's waiting to confront jason and of course it doesn't go down and then the next day jason shows up and uh he takes out like four out of nine people inside of a couple minutes you know and it's this like broad daylight just like assault and um and it feels less like creepy slasher beats and more like you know, Omaha Beach and Saving Private Ryan. Like, it's just <laughs> happening all around you and you're just scrambling to survive. And um, and from there, um, yeah, the, we, we, we sort of, once once it was up and running and Jason was this kind of, you know, uh, Tyrannosaurus, as he's been described before, um, kind of marching through and taking out people, um, you know, there were lots of kind of hide-and-seek games and we came up with some some cool found footage you know, situations where, you know, people hiding, um, I think in a kitchen, there was one really great beat where, um, they have to lay low while Jason comes in. And, uh, one of the other sort of, uh, older camp counselors comes back and is wandering around and they don't have the guts to tell them that they need to hide. They don't know that Jason's <laughs> on the loose. And so the camera's stuck recording and you basically watch this entire murder play out, um, with, with Jason and this other counselor, but you can only see them from like the thighs down, um, which made for some, pretty nasty visual reveals body parts dropping and stuff in frame stuff like that so it, it was oh. fun to use the limitations of the device in a certain way it, like it it brought us to surprising places visually for how we could stage the kills and knowing that the kills were like a big part of it like that was it was just kind of fun to give ourselves those limitations and just run with it you keep some yeah. of that i think even that yeah. specific kill there's mm-hmm. a there's still an element of that in the Nick Antasca right. version, even though it's not found footage. And so how does that version then kind of yeah. die and get to this next one? Because it looks like it was like a year, like from when you were on until he came on board, Nick. So uh, just to let the listeners know, according to like variety and all that. Yeah, it was, uh, I mean, it, the the found footage draft almost happened like we location scouted in georgia yeah i feel like it was was happening there was a moment my perception just as a yeah citizen and it was moving pretty quick and i mean i mean as a filmmaker there was a moment of like i don't know if it's ready like we really got to fight to get it there like what's the energy of the studio and um and i was tempted to ask for more time or do another development pass but then as is sometimes the case it just kind of stalled um and then there was a regime change at the studio. You know, um, you know, new president came in, and oh, actually, no, wait, that was later. I think what happened was, I think there was a found footage release that came out that did not meet everyone's Basically expectations. Basically, the, the gimmick was waning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you could feel it in the air. Like it started, the tide started to, you know, uh, or the, the the wind shifted, and um, um, and we all started looking at it as an opportunity to maybe change course, um, which is very exciting to me because, you know, I've been kind of pushing, like, there's a lot of great discoveries here. Like, you know, maybe we can do something really interesting in the 3D format. That's another thing is that mm-hmm. it, it had been tossed around, like, what about found footage <laughs> 3D? Um, which, again, not my favorite idea, but the possibility that it could turn into a conversation about 3D as opposed to found footage. I think 
was promising. And so um, suddenly there was energy to explore a non-found footage draft, and uh, and uh, and they wanted to bring on a new writer. And so I got to you know meet a bunch of new folks and and talk to people with great ideas. We talked to a lot of filmmakers around town about it and where it was. Um, and uh, and and just fell in love with Nick's work and his well, and take on it. For listeners, mm-hmm. he's the creator of Channel Zero, which mm-hmm. was a great, I guess, technically anthology show, even though mm-hmm. it was more like American Horror Story. Each season's a new thing. Um, what had he done at that point? He had a pilot that he had written, and I don't recall the title of it off the top of my head, but it was it was just a fantastic read. I mean, there was no. I mean, from the second I read it, I was like, you know, it. Look, if we're gonna if we're gonna bring in somebody new, like let's let's bring in somebody that's like young and exciting, is you know a, a fascinating new piece of material, and see where it gets us. And so um, uh, everybody was responsive to that, and he came in, and he just you know he killed it in the room. He had great ideas about Jason. We just we just knew he was gonna have a grasp on this, and so um, him him and I huddled up, and we we you know we sort of set our minds to go. Let's take all the great things that you know worked in the the Richard Nian draft, and like. Now that the found footage mandate is done, like where does that carry us? You know, um, and a lot of what moved forward were, you know, the character relationships. Um, that coming of age sensibility was something that we could we could run with and 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 illuminate in different ways because now we were we were free from the camera mandate. Like you could you could follow a character without them having to be next to the person that had the camera yeah. rolling. So suddenly, like, you can do more of an ensemble piece, um, which, again, going back to the Dazed and Confused thing was sort of was part of the idea. And um, it gave you more room to explore details in their relationships. Um, one of the great things that, you know, in inheriting the draft from Richard and Ian is that we were able to keep a lot of the great character work that they had done, um, that coming of age sensibility, everything that we loved about the Dazed and Confused sort of taken pitch and bring it into a 3D only sort of traditional proper reboot. And, um, you know, with, uh, you know, with Nick on the project, him and I were able to huddle up and just it suddenly created all these possibilities. So things that we weren't able to do in found footage, for instance, in found footage, you always have to justify you know, a character talking relative to the camera. And if you've got one or two cameras, uh, one or two characters holding a camera, then uh, it really limits situationally what kinds of character conflicts you can have. So suddenly, like, you know, we were able to do more of an ensemble drama. We could follow, you know, different characters around in the way they related to other characters. And it just complicated all the relationships. It made for, uh, I think, a a richer experience in some ways, taking that mandate away. And I'm kind of curious, too, Mm -hmm. um, and just where your headspace was at with it, because uh, I mean, what's your generally feeling general feeling on Friday Thirteenth just mm-hmm. as a franchise, like at the time, kind of going into this? I mean, I you know I had grown up on '80s horror films, um, but I was always the guy who was a little bit I was a little afraid of horror when I was younger. Mm-hmm. I had I had the one friend Kevin Kevin Coglin was his name who. Uh, still a good buddy of mine who uh, would introduce me to all these movies and I just I was terrified of them and he loved the Friday the 13th franchise but I almost I couldn't stick through the movies for a long time so I kind of rediscovered it all again in college where I could sort of uh, I appreciate it yeah. on a different level and one of the things that I always loved about the franchise beyond the fact that it was just like pure popcorn entertainment you know is that you uh, I think people that love it are sort of in on the fact that it was an absurd run, you know, that it, it was, you kind of go in knowing, you know, they had, 
they had one shot at this and they just kept coming up with excuses to continue yeah. and you become kind of in on the, the master joke of uh, uh, what are they going to do next to resurrect Jason and then Tom McLaughlin comes along and straight up does a, a Frankenstein resurrection and uh, gives it a whole different tone and introduces, you know, his kind of satire camp uh, sort of taste, you know, what is it like maybe maybe 10 years, nine, eight years or something before Scream, mm-hmm. um, you know, with Jason, you know, with uh, Jason Lives. And so, uh, yeah, I, I appreciated I appreciated the fun of that. I appreciated the fact that people could, you know, uh, that Jason was constantly reinvented in that regard. And uh, and I thought the formula was always endless fun. So, I mean, I was probably more of a Freddy guy, you know, at the time in a lot of ways because I, I liked the the subconscious element of it. I liked the invention a, of it. It was but, a more creative franchise. Uh, growing mm-hmm. up, Friday was always my favorite in part for what you were saying was that they weren't even trying but in a way I liked like, mm-hmm. I think I've already made this joke like three times on this podcast, but I was mm-hmm. compared to the fact that Jason didn't leave Camp Crystal Lake until part eight. Right. That would have been like if they'd made eight diehard movies, eight, eight <laughs> diehard movies that all take place in Nakatomi Tower. Like, it's crazy that they just didn't even mix it up for so long. But that's part of what I like about what you guys were doing here um, is that you you know, I think it's more about what you do with the formula. And I think possibly they're just trying to overthink it. Sometimes you hear ideas they had for some of these. Mm-hmm. Like you guys are just like, no, we'll just make a Friday the 13th movie, but we'll make it real cool. Yeah. Um, but, but also there was, I think there the, the, the temptation is to focus on mythology. You know, like, what if we involve Jason's dad? Like, mm-hmm. what if we found out more about where Jason comes from or more about his mother? And I think, you know, Nick and I, I think all of us uh, sort of had a reaction against that. I think the, it was like, it's maybe that's not what we all care about, to your point. It's what we do with the formula. Mm-hmm. It's about getting the tone right. And it's like, it's about never forgetting that, like, Jason's frightening because for the same reason all slashers are frightening is that we don't know anything about him. We don't know what his psychology is. We don't want to mm-hmm. go back and unpack him too much in some regard. It's like you just want him to be this absurd killing machine. And so the question becomes like, well, how do you elevate that experience? And it's like, well, it has to come through the characters. You know, if if you're at a turning point in your life, you know, you're ending college, you're uh, about to go out into the real world. Um you know, there's this foreboding sense of doom of what's going to come at you necessarily. And so uh, I think embracing that and also embracing the idea that, you know, he should be something that shouldn't exist. Like, how do you embrace the absurdity of Jason? Um, Because, you know, he's cobbled together, like the images that we understand are cobbled together by several filmmakers over the Mm. course of many, many years. He doesn't get his mask until part three. Kind of adding to the pastiche of what he was in a way. Yeah, exactly. And so it's it's like, well, we've arrived at this image and it, it doesn't make a ton of sense mythologically. And the more you try to pack that together in a verifiable, reliable way, the goofier it kind of becomes. And so... The idea is like he shouldn't exist and yet he does. You know, how mm-hmm. do you get back to this idea of like it's a campfire tale that is cobbled together over, you know, people playing telephone with a scary story over time. Somebody tells it. I hear Jason does this. I hear this. I hear that. And uh, and you want to laugh it off. And yet there's a knock on the door. Here it is. <laughs> and so it's just like digging into that kind of haunted vibe. And um, yeah, I mean, that that 
that was the approach in a lot of ways. And and what you end up getting focusing on the characters that way is like a little bit of an Amblin vibe. And so, you know, you ask about the earlier Friday, you know, Friday films. I mean, the one that I think always stuck with me the most was part four. Um, not just because of Crispin Glover, you know, and, and specifically not because of the invention of like Tommy Jarvis or anything that kind of continued there, but it was just a tonal question. It was like, how do you, you know, have fun with these characters, laugh at them, but also care about them enough that, you know, there's a, uh, there's a little a hint of tragedy and threat to their demise. Um, and, uh, I think, I think that influenced, you know, where we went with Friday 13th. 3D well, quite a bit. Even using mm-hmm. that to jump off mm-hmm. into the mm-hmm. script, um, as far as we were saying, which I very much agree, the idea that we have this image of a Jason movie that's really cobbled together from a gazillion films. And I'd say one of those is that it's about camp counselors. Hardly mm-hmm. any of them are actually about camp counselors. Right. Only one <laughs> of them, Jason Lives, even has kids at the camp. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I like that that's where you guys begin. There's counselors, mm-hmm. there's kids. Uh, it begins... Oh, I like that in the script, actually, you have this whole page that lists all the characters, which uh, made it easy yeah. to remember. Yeah, yeah, lists all the there. characters, and they're, you know, like, Kevin Beamer, the awkward smart kid, sensitive and sarcastic, but a bit of a romantic, sometimes too smart for his own good, no luck with girls, and you kind of run through everybody. But you begin with a kind of classic camp scene where, well, do you think it's a corpse floating in the water, mm-hmm. and then it turns out it's one of the counselors, uh, and they're doing, like, a... Um, water safety activity where the kid's supposed to like rescue her and pull her back mm-hmm. uh, that's our character Sloan um, who's like a, how would she's sort of a she's not a nerd she's like the kind of Janine Garofalo type yeah, little snarky she's got a little bit of a dark edge to her too you sort of you sort oh, wait, of, I can just read the description there you go yeah. Sloan Higgins <laughs> the cynic smart and droll her cynicism hides self-consciousness there we go yeah, yeah. you sort of feel like Sloan is maybe more equipped to handle what's coming at her in a way. Um, but yeah, uh, that was all Nick. I mean, that opening image of her floating dead in the water and then you realize she's playing dead mm-hmm. uh, w- was just too good. And um, and the idea was, you know, let's let's I- if they're training kids for water safety, then what if somebody actually ends up in peril? And so you have this kid that almost drowns and because uh, all the camp counselors are, are kind of uh, they're clowning around, you know, they're kind of laugh, uh, uh, caught up in the drama of their own lives. They're not paying attention for a minute. So you have this this moment of, um, you know, real peril that they're all responsible for. And that is really the catalyst to the conversation of uh, this myth. It's like you heard about the kid that drowned. Right. You know, you heard about this story. Well, that's what I was going to say, too, that you also, I think, do a good job of, yeah, not getting too over-obsessed with the backstory. But again, I think things that people imagine from the franchise that aren't there is the first movie, obviously, most people are aware now, thanks to Scream, in part, that Jason's, like, not even really a character in the first Mm -hmm. one. But neither is Pamela Voorhees. Like, they know people died. Mm -hmm, Pamela mm -hmm. Voorhees has nothing to do with the, like, ghost story that's told in the first one. That's all Mm -hmm. stuff we get in, like the final 10 minutes of the movie. So I like that, you know, you're, you're threading it all through. We've got Jason. We've got that his mom avenged his death and killed a bunch of people however many years ago mm-hmm. um, to just be rattling around uh, in people's brains. Um, and it is interesting, like, reading through this was fun because, and you say the um, dazed and confused, is that in a way, and I guess kind of keeping a little bit of the structure you had from the found footage, mm-hmm. it's a bit of a slow burn. We've got some murders that happen, um, but it is kind of a, 
it feels like it's going to be more like mysterious and then about halfway through we just kind of get into nonstop mayhem mm-hmm. yeah which i also like is that you i grew up a huge fan of the fridays also and it's always like it's a death blow and then they're done and this is the first time i've ever seen like in a friday this would have been the first time in a friday film where it's not death blow and the victim is dead there's bleeding out and there's lots of moments after they're being tormented by Jason where they're still barely alive, which I found even more frightening. Because when I saw Friday 13th Part 2 as a kid, I was terrified of it because I was like 10 years old. I'm reading this script and I'm like, wow, this would have got people terrified of Jason again because you don't even see him. You always see him from a distance. And when he's killing mm-hmm. the first victims, it's very, it's kind of far off also. And I thought that was amazing like how like the slow build to him as well when you do a lot uh, of description too that makes him yeah. sound very frankensteiny where it seems like his body parts don't like all fit together right i'm curious what your like mental image of him was um so a cu- so couple things responding to all that i mean first of all you know the awkwardness of violence like i there's just nothing more frightening to me than like um how futile small efforts can be in a state of violence um Sometimes incorporating detail in those moments, um, I, I find, can be somewhat traumatizing. And I know, you know, I know Friday the 13th movies are supposed to be fun, but we, we, we thought, you know, with the attention we'd paid to characters, like, it, it would be interesting if we pushed it a little bit. Like, it's fun, but it's a little uncomfortable. It's a little threatening. He, he hits a little harder than he should. And so some of that was shaking up the rhythm of... Um, you know, wh- wh- how the kills traditionally worked. You know, it's like part two, you got the guy in a wheelchair, you like long mm-hmm. suspense beats out on the porch and then it like all builds to one punctuated moment and you have machete death, you know? And it's like, um, again, this is also something that comes from developing it in found footage is that, you know, we can't cut away. So, you know, you have to justify what's going on with that camera. And so you end up in these situations where you have partial impacts, you know, um, people bargaining, um, you know, people uh, trying to get away. There's one kill in this um, where a guy, he, he kind of attacks Jason and uh, and he gets stabbed a few times by the machete and he gets a machete in the gut and he manages to get away and he runs and, um, and he's running through the woods and you're like, oh God, he made it. I mean, he's hurt, but he made it and he's running and he's running a little slower and then he's running a little slower and then suddenly he's to a walk and then it's like one, two, three, four, face plant. And it's just like, <laughs> it's mm-hmm. just for the audience, it is a long, slow curve of like, oh, he's not going to make it. He's going to bleed out mm-hmm. in the woods. And so, um, there's a slight sense of humor to that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it sort of shook up those rhythms in a lot of ways. And it was something that we went back to quite a bit. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the image of Jason was interesting because it, it, we, we knew that the audience was going to expect us in a new reboot to return to, uh, a grounded, very realistic Jason, you know? Um, and in 2009, um, Platinum Dunes and Nispel had done the survivalist Jason. You know, they had they had, you know, followed that to its logical ends and mm-hmm. in all the ways that they could. And so again, going back to this idea of like he shouldn't exist and yet he does. Um, and the horror of that, we, we were like, it would be awesome if we created a movie that was super grounded that you bought into in all these different ways, that it's then revealed about halfway through that it's actually zombie Jason or supernatural Jason, you know, that it harkens more towards what Jason became in the cultural imagination than where he began. And, um, and so 
you know, it was in talking to Nick that he kind of defined it more as uh, he's almost like he's a revenant. He's a spirit of revenge. And so when the campfire tale brings them across the lake from um, the contemporary camp that they're at to the old closed down crystal, uh, you know, Camp Crystal Lake, um, they have the story of Jason's mom. We pay homage to that, but she's not in the movie necessarily. And um, the kids, you know, in trying to boast, you know, mostly the dudes trying to impress the, 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 the women, um, you know, they, they, they cuss out Jason's mother. You I was going to say, maybe talk I'll shit even, about Jason's mother. So I'll I'm getting into plot, but yeah. Brief yeah. summary, uh, yeah. just so we don't get ahead of the audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically there's kind of our most important characters. There's two brothers, Brad and Kevin. Mm-hmm. Brad's like the cool, confident one. Kevin is described as a John Cusack type. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, yeah, Brad, Brad is off with a girl, Amber, uh, Kevin likes the like hot popular, basically the Daphne from Scooby Doo, Vanessa, right. um, mm-hmm. Sloane. We already said is our kind of snarky Janine Garofalo type, um, and they find out about the ghost story of Pamela Voorhees and her son mm-hmm. in Camp Crystal Lake, which sits. Uh, by the way, this is uh, uh, New Jersey, August 1988. It's yep. not in the They find out about Camp Crystal Lake on the other side of the lake. They take canoes. They get a tour from Frank, who's kind of like the middle-aged camp janitor groundskeeper type who's basically like, no, I can show you where it is Mm -hmm. uh, if you give me some of your joint or whatever. And they take canoes across. Uh, Over there, you got Greg. Middle of the night. Middle of the night. Um, There's a guy, Greg, who's sort of the the jokester type. In fact, he even plays much like Shelly in part three. The hockey mask is... Hockey mask is introduced because he pops out wearing it, trying to scare people. But yeah, you're just kind of getting to, he's drunk and he's like, fuck you, Pamela Voorhees, you know, just joking around, kind of like defying this ghost story with Mm -hmm. disbelief. And you sort of get the impression that it's this level of disrespect that almost summons Jason back. Yeah, I mean, he's it, it. It it's revenge in one way or another. Mm-hmm. It's it's revenge for, it's it's spiritually. It's like it's uh, the the spirit of consequence coming back to them for almost having this kid drown, mm-hmm. um, and then you know for, for in a pop culture sense, it is what Jason is. He's he's coming to avenge something in some way. He's come. It's there's a punitive sensibility to who he is. But again, it's all about the characters. We're not kind of wrapped up in Jason's mythology. He shouldn't exist, and yet he does. He mm-hmm. drowned. You know, and so there's a line in there where somebody has a dream about him and it's like, it's it's the boy, except he's big. Mm-hmm. And so to your question of like, how did we imagine him? We, we never got to the point where we were designing him necessarily for, for you know, um, Friday 13th 3D. But um, but we this idea that he was a revenant, that you could trace his outfits down to who he killed, like he sort of inhabited. Uh, he kills Frank first and he, mm-hmm. you know, he sort of takes his wardrobe or something um, that there's just a lot of questions. He's a bit more of a of a force of nature than a, a character that you're not going to find his shack where he lives in the woods mm-hmm. necessarily. Um, but yeah. What were you going to say, Steve? Mm-hmm. No, no, nothing. Uh, I mean, keep going. I don't want to jump too much ahead. I have a couple of things, but. Well, yeah. And then we kind case. of like, again, it's. <laughs> Frank dies. I mean, there's a whole nice little thing where they took yeah. two canoes over, and then all of a sudden when they go back, there's only one canoe, and they're mm-hmm. like, oh, Frank must have taken one. Uh, and, like, two of the characters have to walk through the woods. We kind of get Jason's first pitch, which we kind of touched upon, but in the script it notes, a huge, strangely proportioned figure coming down the ridge. The figure's movements are stiff, uncoordinated, as if unused to its own body, which kind of gets to the idea that he isn't just wandering around the woods all the time. He's mm-hmm. kind of 
returned at this moment. Um, and there's a whole nice thing, too, where there's there are all these kids, and it's the last days of camp, so the kids' parents are all coming to get them. And, you know, it's a bit of suspense wondering of, like, when is Jason going to hit? Is it going to be while the kids are all here? But then the kids all leave, and it's kind of like there's this last night that our can- counselors have to kind of, like, live it up. But Duckworth, who's, like, the older camp head counselor, whatever you'd call it, runs mm-hmm. the camp, sends them all into town to get, like, supplies. Um, and that's kind of when things start to slowly unravel with Jason. There's a great scene where Duckworth is killed by Jason mm-hmm. with a shovel that's pretty disgusting, mm-hmm. where he's just like jamming the shovel into his chest. It was a beehive at one point. Oh, no way. Really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, I think we pulled back from the beehive again. We went a little bit more for the brutality, but yeah. Well, and then you kind of start getting into, uh, what I like about this too is I like mm-hmm. when scripts get to, because as you said, most of the Jason movies are kind of format I love though, but it's the idea that our hero, it's a... Uh, um, forgetting the dramatic term, basically dramatic farce where the audience is fully aware that Jason is out there killing everyone and the only person who doesn't know is our hero mm-hmm. who's just oblivious, maybe like, where all my friends go? And then it culminates with them coming back inside and Jason at some point has meticulously placed all their friends in the cabin hanging from doors and sitting in chairs and then uh, there's really only like 10 minutes where a hero knows what's going on. But in this, you kind of very quickly get to the point where like Kevin and some of our other people are like, no, it's this like Jason guy. He's killing people. Let's all build weapons and like yeah. fortify the camp is like halfway through the story. And it's like, oh, well, where are we going to go right, from right. here? A, and lot then, of, a lot of conversations about, you know, uh, to up in slasher format a little bit. It's like how soon can our characters know they're in a horror film or think maybe they're in a horror film, but not quite believe it mm-hmm. for a little while, even though we know. So they're they're a little bit in the loop. But yeah. Yeah, because there are these moments where mm-hmm. they find footprints of feet looking into windows, cabin windows and stuff like that, which is just really eerie when they start figuring out, wait, there's someone around here and they go tell the cops and the cops don't believe them or what, you know, the cops throw them yeah. off. They know something's up. Yeah. Uh, they can't find Duckworth, you know, mm-hmm. they haven't heard from Dylan. So it's like some, you know, it was basically the, the cool kid from town that was selling them weed. You know, it's like we followed a few of these kills. So they know something's going on. But the last thing they're ready to fully accept in their minds and their hearts is that the mythological story, you know, the campfire tale has come real and that this this entity has come back for them. So, uh, yeah, it keeps them a little in the know. Well, I like that you're able to kind of, by getting, you're able to have your cake and eat it too because kind of the, the kills in the first half of the script are a little bit more like what you're talking about from the found footage where mm-hmm. they're a little more mysterious. They're like yeah. shot from far away, kind of letting your imagination do a lot of the work. But then we do get into the classic yeah. Jason kills and I'll just... There's this great scene with a Weezer who's like the, you know, yes. the shaggy, yeah. the stoner guy. And he likes his like morning rituals going up on this like water slide. Mm-hmm. And he goes down the water slide and Jason like jams his machete up into the slide and he like gets stuck in it. And it's this disgusting thing of him stabbed on the machete and kind of trying to pull himself off of it. And... I, I, I owe that kill to a friend of a friend yeah. <laughs> over a drink who said, no one's ever done a water slide kill. And I was like, my God, can we have that? But uh, but yeah, it also comes after the big night where they all yes. fortify and they all kind of make their own weapons. <laughs> yeah, and, and you're it like, doesn't come. Waiting and they're for like... it to happen. It doesn't come. You cut to morning and there's like an upside down you know, shot of the trees with the sunrise. And you're like, mm-hmm. what am I looking at? Everything feels wrong. Why isn't the movie behaving the way I want it to? And then you find Weezer the stoner 
upside down on the water slide because that's where he smokes his morning joint, you know, and it's the last also, day. <laughs> they yeah. find Weezer's corpse barely recognizable as human, hacked literally to soggy pieces. His face resembles a rubber mask, someone filled with chunky tomato su- sauce and stomped on. I just like that. Well, it's a great visual description. <laughs> it's a great sequence when they find his remains because there's all this, they're like, what is that, meat in the water? They mentioned yeah. meat many yeah. times that all these parts of his body are floating up on on the lake which i thought was like you know you usually see they open the closet and the body hangs down well you know when, so i thought that was really awesome got me where i was like okay this is getting extra interesting mm-hmm. is where you pull a psycho and kevin our john cusack lead uh jason picks him up and slams him against the tree until he's dead and now he's just oh so I guess he's not our hero. Yeah, and that was left over, you know, from the found that footage drafts. It was always like, can we kill our protagonist halfway through? How's this going to behave, you know? And uh, and and that happens in the midst of the giant kind of attack, right? Which yeah. is Which, again, was a leftover, which was just like, once they find Weezer's body, it's like, okay, everybody's going to get out of here. What kind of movie is it going to turn into? And then Jason shows up in broad daylight and attacks everybody. And you have several kills in order. So, you, yeah. What I like about that is that he's the one that froze when the kid was drowning. And then when Jason is killing Greg, he freezes again. But he's like, no, I'm going to pick up some rocks and I'm going to protect my friends. And he starts throwing rocks at Jason. And Jason, all of a sudden, yeah, he leaves everyone and he goes straight to him. And as Josh says, throws him into a tree (laughs) and then just kill like hit you know like kills him with the machete and it's like shocking and again this is like a broad daylight yes like you know 11 a.m massive attack across the camp which you've never seen in a friday 13th and it scatters all of the kids like they (laughs) all end up like wounded and in peril in different little corners we've already been talking about it but as far as just going through the script as you start kind of approaching the idea of like what what is Jason really? And there's kind of like these little hints as we keep getting closer. Like there's one part of his description. Uh, granted, this was just in the blocking. I, um, but it's drip, drip, lake water as if he's leaking. It's yeah. just kind of mm-hmm. the idea of like what's going on with Jason. And well, I feel like. Well, that actually plays into the big reveal. I think the big say, reveal big of reveal, what he was, which, which is I, where... I, could, I could take. It's like probably my favorite just directorial beat in the whole movie, if you don't mind. I could take us through it, which is just, you know, you've got. Um, is it Sloan? You've got Sloan. Kirby. Oh, it's Kirby. Oh, Kirby's out on the She's on the like raft. She's like trapped on the raft. Oh, this is yeah. my favorite sequence. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And you've got you've got Sloan, who's partially injured, who's down by the shore. And um, now I may remember it a little differently than the script, but um, but yeah. So Sloan is wounded, and she's trying to get away, and she's moving down by the shore. And this is post attack, so you're sort of you can still hear your friends crying out or yelling for help in other parts of the camp. You know, there's only like 10 people at the camp in total. And uh, and Sloane's looking for a place to hide. And she looks out across the lake and um, Kirby has swum, swum out to the middle of the lake and uh, there's this like raft in the middle of the water and she's climbed up on the raft and realizing she's completely visible, she's decided to like lay flat to hide herself. So Sloane and Kirby are kind of communicating across the water. And um, and and Kirby waves at Sloan and like starts pointing up to the trees. And Sloan turns around and here's Jason. He's coming down the hill. He's he's you know he's he's walking with purpose. And uh, and she starts to look around and she's like you know can I hide behind that tree? Can I hide under that canoe? Like where can I go? And um, and uh, Jason marches right down and gets too close and she realizes she's she's going to get caught if she flees. So she just lays down and plays dead. And uh, Jason walks right up to her, and uh, there's this very, very tense moment where he's standing over her, and that's where you get almost lake water dripping on her face. And she can't <laughs> blink. She can't do anything. There's a, um, 
a moment in this movie. Do you guys remember Headhunters? Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Is, is Norwegian, Norwegian or Swedish? Oh, I'm thinking Swedish, maybe? Like, never mind. Yeah, there's a moment where <laughs> no, God has to... I'm thinking of Mindhunters. Mindhunters, I'm sorry, go. <laughs> he has to play dead, and it's so tense. It's so amazing. And so uh, uh, I was thinking a bit about that. And um, so Jason's standing over her, and her eyes are playing open, so we can see from her perspective sort of his silhouette. And this is some of the clearest that we've seen him yet. And his machete comes down into the frame and just tips her face up so he can check to make sure that she's dead. And uh, after a long beat, the machete withdraws and her head kind of falls back to the side along the ground. And she watches as he starts to walk past her and she realizes that he's, you know, dragging one of her friends by the foot. And we watch as uh, Jason just marches uh, step by step into the lake and then just completely submerges and disappears into the water. And so that's our big moment of like, you know, it's supernatural Jason. Mm -hmm. He's killing people and he's carrying them back to the lake where, as the story is told, he had died. And uh, anyway, oh, I, it, I that's my say, favorite. Well, that that leads into a whole thing where it's yeah. like almost like Jaws, where yes. Kirby's on the dock <laughs> and like being like, "Where'd he go?" And there's just his like little bubble trail, like getting yes. closer. And then she eventually gets pulled out, and that's when we reveal that he's been taking all the corpses and bringing them down to the bottom of the lake where he was. And it's like that's pretty interesting, as far as a way to use stuff we've seen and I mean mm-hmm. I always thought it was funny that in both six and seven end with Jason in the exact same spot. I was kinda right. like, come on guys, <laughs> for part seven, you can't have him chained to the bottom of the lake again. We just did that. But uh, him at the bottom of the lake is definitely an iconic part of the series. So you're able to do this like bit of uh new things without going too far into yeah. unnecessary backstory. What are you gonna say, Steve? No, I said it's a great sequence of her being dragged underwater by Jason and you see all the bodies in the lake and it's almost like that's what's like fueling him in a way you know it's pretty amazing and without saying anything like you put it all together in your head and just to go back a moment to when she was hiding and he's dragging a corpse of one of her friends i love this moment he says uh in the script it says as the killer passes the smoldering campfire and he's dragging something uh duckworth's corpse he picks up a chunk of glowing firewood and calmly pounds Duckworth's head with it repeatedly <laughs> you know just to be thorough and he you know and I just it's just such a crazed mentality this thing is dead and I think it also says that the head is swollen up like a giant rotten purple squash and he picks up an, a piece of wood and starts bashing it just for no reason I love that I was like wow this thing is terrifying and like relentless you know well, it all builds up to uh to like, this is a lot more of him. We, we guess we saw a bit of this in Freddy versus Jason, but it's him mm-hmm. more of just this, uh, yeah, T Rex, unstoppable mm-hmm. force of nature. It isn't just about him plucking off teens one by one when they're alone in the woods. It's like the cops show up at the end and he like kills all of them. There's a great bit, Brad, who was like the cool brother who you kind of would have assumed would have died halfway through instead of Kevin. Um, but it's like but Jason basically just saws his head in half while he's like standing up. Um, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure if in that draft, too, there was a moment where he flips a truck over. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he yeah, does. yeah. He's, uh, I'm not sure which one you guys are reading, but he, he, yeah, it's, it's, he also has, you know, like incredible strength in that way, but it was trying to capture that sense of it being completely r- ridiculous. Like he stops them trying to drive away, flips a truck over. Mm-hmm. 
Um, you know, one of the girls is in the back of the truck. So now she's like, uh, this is a truck bed. So it's like a pickup truck. It's flipped over. And so she's okay, but she's under the bed. And then he's ripping the tailgate off, you know, and it's just like, he's completely coming at you. And the only thing that's going to save you is one of your friends having the guts to distract him for a second. But yeah. yeah. Well, and I also it, think it's interesting at the end, because we had Todd Farmer to talk on here to talk about his Halloween 3D script that didn't get made. Um, but it's kind of interesting seeing where kind of fans making these movies now acknowledging how these franchises exist because it's always like he dies at the end and then you think of some new preposterous way to bring him back and one thing that Halloween 3D and this both have in common is that you kind of have the logical ending where it doesn't end with him dying right it ends with mm-hmm. him kind of being like well I killed everybody and that person got away <laughs> I'm just sort of Charlie Brown style gonna like wander off <laughs> back into the woods um and then this ends with a bit two here where you, we cut forward in time uh, and you hint at uh, there's snow following the snowy town of Crystal Lake, dead of winter. It's dark, eerily quiet, a ghost town utterly abandoned except for a single set of boot prints in the snow. I, I was wondering if you were already thinking of this, the snow-based Friday the 13th <laughs> movie that pe- we keep seeming to almost get and never quite get. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah, let me... I, I, I wonder if you mind if I back up for yeah, a second sure. and just kind of talk about that ending because I, Nick felt very much that it would that it would be amazing to have two final girls at the end. You know that we sort of set the movie up like it's actually the protagonist is is this guy Kevin and um, and um, you know it's the Daphne character who's more complex than we imagine and this character Sloane that make it all the way to the end. And there's something you know to your point of Jason surviving so just like iconic and fun about them making it to the town at the end. So they've escaped Crystal Lake. The police have gotten involved. They get pulled down to the town and you, you've you sort of played the faux Jason death. Like, did they vanquish him? Did they not vanquish him? And the cops are around and they're interviewing the two girls. And um, and uh, one of the cops is like, don't worry, you know, um, he's dead. And she goes, no, 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 you don't understand. He can't die. He can't die. And it was <laughs> like, we just loved this of mm-hmm. coming back around to that. And... Um, and the cop says, trust me, you know, sweetheart, he's dead. Um, he's right there in that ambulance. And she's like, what ambulance? And she's completely panicked. We all know oh, what's coming. Yeah, she skipped over <laughs> that and, uh, and And you see this ambulance and it's parked and it starts to drive away. This is like in the center of the small, th- in, in the town of Crystal Lake. Is, yeah. It just slowly drifts off the road and like collides softly with a telephone pole. And there's like a beat. And you're like, what the hell is going to happen? And then from the inside an impact happens so hard that it knocks the ambulance over on its side and then all hell breaks loose and Jason that's what I breaks over out because he yeah. busts out with a bone saw yes. and that's what he uses to saw Brad's head in half yeah, <laughs> this bone and, saw he got from the ambulance and we just wanted to do this like final set piece where it's like cops shooting him just like let's just go all the way with like you know, yeah. Jason can't die, and he and and it's this massive, unfortunate moment of violence. He takes out several people in the middle of the street, and then um, I think in that draft the the two girls survive, but um, but there was a version where he kind of makes a deal, and and he grabs Sloane by the hair, and the final image is him dragging her off into the darkness down the street, and uh, <laughs> after he's attacked everybody, and um, and then we wanted to end it with like. No music, just like a slow pullout of that image of Jason disappearing into the darkness and the camera just tracks back and you just see the carnage in his wake. And we're talking like 
he had thrown a body on a police car and there's yeah. like smoke and fire and there's people that are there's people that are dead there's people that are half wounded and you can kind of hear the echoes and the cries in the street and as you pull back you just roll credits over that with no music <laughs> <laughs> and just back uh, all the way up and we're like fuck Jason's back and then the credits end and to your point you know um, the stinger at the end w- would be you go to black and that that's when you see the snow flurries come down and um uh, and uh, it's later. It's like a year. I think actually, I think we dated it. I think it's a couple years later. And now everything that happened in the first movie has become almost like its own campfire tale. It's become myth. And um, camp, the entire town of Crystal Lake has been abandoned. And um, some kids pull up uh, to kind of the gates, the, 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 the entrance sign of the town. And it's been boarded off. And um, and they're telling the story and there's just like spray painted on that sign is uh, Jason lives, you know, it's the belief that he's still there. And so it sets up what I think everybody really wanted, which was like a snowboard Jason movie, you know, like, like I just, snow I've level. Said it before. And, I, I still can't believe we've gotten so many Jason yeah. movies and we've never seen him on a hockey rink. Yeah. <laughs> so. Now I know that I, I never read the other platinum dunes draft, the follow up to the O nine version, but I think it opened with a hockey one. death. Yeah. I think, um, which, yeah, the fans, we deserve it, right? Well, uh, as we start yeah. wrapping this up here, now to the hard question, then what happened? Then what happened? <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I, it was, uh, I, I think mostly it was a regime change at the studio. Yeah. You know? Um, the lamest because... way for a movie to die, which is the reason 80%, if not more, of movies don't happen, is just somebody else came in. Totally. <laughs> and, it too. you know. They kept pushing it, and you know we thought it was great. I mean, we were pretty mystified. It was like, and uh, uh, yeah, and as is as is the way in Hollywood, it it goes quiet, and time passes, and you go, okay, this isn't looking great. And um, and I think the phone call I got was like, um, we're gonna put it on pause for a minute, <laughs> you know, which means mm-hmm. this is done, this is over. And you know, to uh, you know, Brad Fuller and Andrew Forms credit. I mean, they were very kind in saying that they released me, but pretty much the project, yeah, died when it died. Like we knew that was the end. Hmm. So, uh, so it goes. It's but, it, God. It's upsetting because it's like this is like the Friday the Thirteenth. I mean, it's amazing the script. I mean, I, I just want to gush about it because I was so blown away reading it. Like I was like, how do you make it different from what Josh said? They keep. You know, they kept well, doing the same it's thing. The bouncing it, act of different, but also exactly the same, which but, is what we all want. But it was like that <laughs> day, the daytime, the moment the daytime slaughter begins, and then you, you're constantly messing with mist and light showers and then rain throughout this whole day of hiding from him. Hide and see is just, instead of it being all at night, it's, so, it's always been there. It's so simple, but I can't believe no one's ever done it. And it's so creepy. The, it's, this whole, the whole daylight death scene uh, the slaughter scene and them hiding is a it's just uh yeah it's riveting it's great to hear you guys say that because i mean because the take was like how do we you know deliver on what jason became so there's this familiar sense of you know the iconography and what happens and the tone and the feelings but like a lot of ways where you innovate is just in the outcome in the beats because that's i think what can potentially make slasher formula redundant for us is that we've all seen it before we all know who's going to die you know to your point before it's like we all know that it's going to take them 78 pages to realize they're in a horror film and we're just waiting for our characters to figure out what's going on so by shaking up those rhythms you know we could we could maybe pay homage in a more traditional sense the stuff that we love about it and still be unexpected like that was the hope um and we do have to wrap up but we'd be remiss if we didn't put at least like two three minutes into mm-hmm. the signal 
sequel. Yeah, the Signal sequel that never happened. Um, that may still happen. We're actually, yeah, still playing around with like a TV show idea for it. Um, but uh, yeah, we developed for a while. Um, was this like right after it, the first one came out? It was, and there's been very, there's been several iterations. But um, I don't know the thing. The thing about the Signal that was pretty fascinating to us that I think has persisted, at least to the original creative team, is the fact that. It's about, you know, media overstimulation um, and how uh, uh, how mass media can kind of warp our perceptions of reality. Again, the original premise was that uh, frequency goes out over the airwaves that um, starts to agitate people and preys on their fears and desires. And suddenly violence starts to break out in the cities. And so a lot of what we were on with the sequel was this idea of um, Rashomon. Like, could you tell stories from different perspectives of different characters where the hallucinatory effects of the signal are actually telling a different story from where they stand? And so um, you have a bunch of different people running around and each of them has their own narrative in their own mind about what's going on and this is spinning out to violence. And uh, we wrote a sequel that um, actually happened, uh, picked up the moment the frequency went out in the first movie and um, told a different story of other characters um, elsewhere in the city as, as uh, the, the signal mayhem was going on. And then uh, it starts to crisscross with events from the first movie. Yeah. And so those characters start to intertwine with our other characters. And so, um, again, you're just playing up the Rashomon quality to it. And, um, and, and we got to have a lot of fun with it. And we start to develop something that the first movie never got into, which is like what happens when leadership emerges in a psychedelic, you know, <laughs> psychotronic, uh, mad state of affairs that is the signal universe. And, um, and uh, the, our new characters, um, for those of us seen the original movie, end up meeting um, Clark, who is the, the landlord in the original film. And we pick up where we left off with Clara Clark in the original film. And we have this last chapter in the second movie called The Rise of Clark and about how he has an idea that may or may not be true about how to shut down the signal and leads a band of people to, you know, Media One, the tower in the center of the city that may or may not be broadcasting the signal. And so, you know, the emperor might have a grasp on what's going yeah. on or he might not. And um, uh, anyway, it was a like total mayhem. But but that's one that only feels more contemporary every yeah, well, single I think day. TV show yeah. makes some sense. And uh, yeah. what do you have coming up that people can... Uh, expect to see coming up we we uh we made a movie last year called the night house that just premiered at sundance and um fox searchlight will be releasing it later this year great yeah and it's uh uh ben collins and luke petrowski wrote it it's um who recently did super dark times and uh, it stars rebecca hall and it is a um it's a spin on a traditional um haunted house and uh, about a woman who's experiencing the uh uh, um, visitations from what she thinks is her recently deceased husband. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, uh, super Dark Times. So underrated. I can't wait to see that. Great movie. Yeah. yeah. Uh, awesome. And where can people find you on the social medias? Uh, I'm on Twitter at uh, Bruck Machina and, uh, and uh, David Bruckner on the Instagrams. Yeah. Cool. And you can cool. find us on Instagram at Best Movies Never Made and on Twitter at Never Made Film. If you're a fan of this podcast, you may want to check out Electric Surge's other podcasts, like the 430 Movie every Friday, in which a group of writers and producers curate fantasy theme weeks of classic movies. And Inglorious Trexperts, the only podcast for Star Trek fans with a life. Available every Saturday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, very special thanks to our guest, David Bruckner. Thanks, yes. guys. 
Um, and also thanks to Bill Ritter and everyone here at Electric Surge Network, including our producers Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman. So until next time, this is Stephen Scarlatta. And I'm Josh Miller saying we won't see you at the movies. This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.